Imagine That Studios and Karu Studios in association with Harper Voyager and Swimming Cat Studios presents Tales from the Archives, Volume 2 The official anthology of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences I say, that storm outside is still raging. Yes, and apparently we're lucky to have made it into the Ministry. Only a few agents at Topside. What about the UAN? Some of those tunnels are flooded. Speaking of which... The archive walls are reinforced. If they can hold the Thames at bay, a storm like this is child's play. Do not tempt the power of nature, Welly. I know you would have much rather remained at home, but considering the recent audit from Dr. Sound and our recent travels along the coast, we couldn't allow a storm to further delay our cataloging the archives, now could we? I suppose not. Pressing on, then? Pressing on. This time our last file takes us to Scotland. Another large case file, isn't it? Well, as they say in the Americas, let's hunker down. Considering the weather, we really have nowhere to go in a hurry. The Cross of Columba by Doc Coleman April 9th, 1883 The mist that rose off the lake cut the small boat off from the rest of the world. With the moon obscured by clouds, and the sun having set behind the rolling highlands, a single lantern mounted on a pole at the bow provided the only illumination in their tiny world. Lord Ainsley Curtis Belgrave Pennyfarthing stood in the bow of the tiny rowboat, his rifle in his hands. His eyes were fixed on the wall of mist, trying to pierce the veil and gain some glimpse of his quarry. My lord, the voice of the boy in the stern of the boat carried clearly over the still waters, although he spoke in little more than a whisper. It's late, my lord. Shouldn't we head back to the shore? We cannot see nothing in this fog. The fourteen-year-old boy shivered in the cooling night air, the chill finally catching up with his apprehension. "'Hush!' the noble replied, ignoring the fact that his booming voice was much louder than the boy's plaintive question. "'Listen, Robbie,' Lord Pennyfarthing said, lifting his rifle to his shoulder, but not taking aim. "'The beast is out there. I can hear it.' Robbie listened, but he could hear nothing other than the water dripping off of his oars and the chattering of his teeth. The boy tucked his hands up under his armpits and tried to warm them with the remaining heat in his body. The boat swayed lightly, causing the lantern to swing, and raising Robbie from his drowsy state. The fog bank remained unchanged, and no wind stirred, but gentle waves began to lap against the boat. Lord Pennyfarthing adjusted his stance, threatening a different stretch of innocent fog with his weapon. The waves continued to lap against the boat, 
slapping it with greater energy and making the lantern dance on the end of its pole. Robbie pulled the oars inside the boat and held on to his seat as the boat rocked beneath him. The Lord continued to menace the mist with his weapon, muttering, Come on, old girl, show yourself. Robbie could still hear the drip-drip of water, but with the oars inside the boat, where could it be coming from? The boy looked up at the dome of fog and started to find a dark, scaly head staring back at him. Water dripped from the open jaws of the creature as it regarded the boy in the boat with small, shining eyes. The head was easily as large as the boat, and the creature could likewise have snapped Robbie up in a single bite. The boy backed away from the creature and let out a strangled squeak. Lord Pennyfarthing snapped his attention from the thick fog in front of him to the giant head above him. He raised his rifle and squeezed off a shot that rang out in the darkness. Despite the rifle's power and the close range, the bullet bounced off the thick hide of the creature, leaving it otherwise unharmed. The sudden noise, however, startled the leviathan. It reared and let out a roar that echoed back from the hills on either side of the lake. The boy turned and leapt from the boat into the cold water of the lake swimming for the unseen shoreline in his panic to be away from the creature. With Robbie's departure, the boat rocked wildly under Lord Pennyfarthing, toppling him over onto his back in the small vessel. The Lord didn't try to right himself, but fired again, twice in quick succession, from his position sprawled upon his back. Another roar punctuated the night and the creature struck out at the small boat. The lantern flared briefly, and then was extinguished as it fell into the water. Robbie heard a single scream from the English lord, which was cut off suddenly amid the sounds of the wooden boat being shattered under the creature's attack. The boy redoubled his efforts, swimming madly into the darkness. April 10th, 1883. Special Agent Brian Sebastian Teague was not happy. And he was wet. Very, very wet. When Teague had first been approached by the Ministry for a position... He had been told that they needed his zoological expertise to identify and preserve rare and unusual species in their native habitats. He was promised the chance to travel the world and be part of some of the most premier zoological research on the planet. When he accepted the position with the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, he found himself assigned as the one-man department of cryptozoology. Instead of being part of serious research, he was stuck at a desk reading outrageously fantastic reports from other agents who had allegedly encountered new species in the field. The worst of these reports were the ones that contained specimens. More often than not, these were chunks of mangled meat that hadn't been properly preserved, 
Even the specimens that were well-preserved had been so damaged by gunfire, explosives, and other mayhem that they were unrecognizable as little more than meat. And then Lord Pennyfarthing came along. Ainsley Curtis Belgrave Pennyfarthing was one of those petty lordlings that considered himself to be a scientist and an explorer, because he could afford to hire a guide and carry a big gun. What brought Lord Pennyfarthing to the Ministry's attention was the type of game that he chose to go after. Agent Teague's first field assignment had him travelling to Greece to verify Lord Pennyfarthing's claim to have captured an actual chimera. What he found on display at Lord Pennyfarthing's press conference had convinced him that his lordship would be well served to find a more skilled taxidermist and fresher samples when attempting to pull off a hoax. The creature in question appeared to have been a museum piece of a lion that had been retired from display due to extreme old age and mange, to which the head of a goat and the body of a snake had been tacked on with little regard for aesthetics or anatomy. Lord Pennyfarthing was not deterred from having his find debunked. Indeed, he appeared to redouble his efforts to discover some mythical creature or another. For the past year, Agent Teague's life had been spent chasing after Lord Pennyfarthing, and exposing his latest discovery as yet another fraud. This might have been interesting work for some, but Teague yearned for the chance to do some real research. Preferably research that did not involve a trip to Scotland. The train from London to Inverness had been the most enjoyable part of this latest excursion. The problems began when he had arrived at Inverness Station and discovered that the carriage that he had hired to take him to Drumnadrochet village turned out to be an open farm cart returning to the village after delivering a load of manure or something else equally foul-smelling. Teague had been unable to either get his money refunded or to hire any alternative transportation. The farmer hadn't even noticed when the rains began shortly after the cart left Inverness for the twelve-mile trip to the village. Now, after over two hours of riding in the rain, Agent Teague was soaked to the bone. His hat drooped like a sodden rag, the brim falling into his face and channeling the rain onto his shoulders. As the cart finally arrived in the village, Teague was hard put to decide which he hated more, Scotland or Lord Pennyfarthing. The cart pulled up in front of the lone inn in the village, and the farmer grunted, apparently feeling that was sufficient to announce that they had arrived. Teague lifted his bags from his lap and feet, having decided he would rather clutch them through the nearly three-hour-long ride than trust them to the dubious state of the back of the open wagon. Teague stepped down from the front of the wagon to the cobblestone road of the village. As the cold water of the street ran into his shoes, he mentally adjusted the balance of his hatred in Lord Pennyfarthing's favor. Teague entered the inn, looking, he was sure, much like a drowned rat. 
He stopped just inside the closed door, water continuing to pour off of him into a spreading pool on the inn's stone floor. Evans, lovey, what did you do? Fall into the lock? A matron called from behind the bar of the inn's large common room. Rough laughter echoed from the handful of men scattered about the room. The structure appeared to double as the local public house, with food and drink served downstairs and rooms available for rent on the upper floors. The matron pushed open a door at the end of the bar and called into the room beyond. Call in! Grab a mop and come clean this up! She smiled as she turned back to Teague. Don't worry about the mess, lovey. Just sit yourself down by the fire for a bit and dry off. Thank you, ma'am. But if you have a room available, I think I'd like to change into some dry clothes. Oh, certainly, lovey, she replied with genuine hospitality. A middle-aged man emerged from the back room, a mop in hand. The matron called to him. Colin, show this gent up to number four, or just leave that mop here. She turned back to Teague. Go get yourself cleaned up, lovey. We'll get you all checked in proper when you're done. Colin propped his mop up in a corner and came over to take Teague's bags from him, frowning briefly at the damp handles. This way, sir, he said, then turned and stomped up the flight of stairs in the far corner of the room. Teague winced at the squishing noises his shoes made as he walked across the stone floor of the common room and up the squeaky wood stairs in Colin's wake. Agent Teague continued to wish for a change of dry clothes, but resigned himself to settling for clothing that was merely damp. The rain had soaked through his cases and touched every bit of his wardrobe. His room was now adorned with hanging clothing on each surface in an attempt to draw the moisture out. He was feeling somewhat better after a warm shower and the chance to deplete some of the inn's supply of dry towels. His shoes still squelched with each step, his weight pushing more moisture out of the soaked leather. As Teague went back downstairs to the common room of the inn, he signed the guest ledger under the cheerful eye of the landlady, refusing her offer of a meal to help warm him, but gratefully accepting a hot cup of tea. What brings you to our little village, lovey? We don't get too many visitors in these parts. The other patrons of the inn seemed glad of this fact, but it was apparent that the landlady, for one, was happy to have someone new to talk to. Word has reached London that Lord Pennyfarthing has made some sort of major zoological discovery in the lake here. I've been dispatched from the government to verify the veracity of Lord Pennyfarthing's find. Do you know where I might be able to find his lordship? Agent Teague hoped this business could be finished quickly, and he could put this godforsaken patch of Scotland behind him and return to London and civilization. The landlady's expression showed her opinion of Lord Pennyfarthing, one which Teague could readily agree with. Oh, you're looking for his nibs. He's probably still out chasing snarks and boojums on the loch. Last I heard, he and Robbie Spencer were taking a boat out on the loch to search for that beastie of his. Oh, they're not going to find nothing but mist on that loch at night, mark my words, lovey. 
She stopped for a moment and looked thoughtful. Although, Robbie usually comes by each morning to take his lordship's breakfast up to him, and I did not see him this morning. One of the other patrons spoke up from his seat near the fire. Didn't you hear, Maggie? Robbie's up at the docks. Seems their boat sank last night. Poor lad had to swim his way to shore. I found the poor bear washed up on the beach this morning, chilled right through. His mam took him right up to the docks and then laid him to bed. Oh, the poor dear! Teague turned to the man. Was there any word of his lordship? The man shook his head and turned back to his pint. Nay, we figure his nibs must have drowned in the loch. Where is your physician's office? Teague asked the landlady. It's just up the high street, lovey. Oh, I hope the poor boy will be all right. Teague turned and headed back out into the Scottish rain, wondering if this time Penny Farthing had actually found something real, or if his folly had finally caught up with him. The visit to the doctors yielded rather disappointing results. He'd refused to allow Teague to talk to the boy, stating that the child was with fever and wasn't able to speak coherently in any case. The man was a stubborn Scot and wasn't even swayed by government credentials. Teague had learned something of use from the nurse, however. The Spencer boy had indeed been hired by Lord Pennyfarthing when his lordship came to town, while his lordship stayed at the inn, the two of them spent most of their time at a camp that Lord Pennyfarthing had set up on the shore overlooking the lake by the old ruined castle. Thankfully, the rain had stopped while Agent Teague made his way down to the shoreline. Feeling almost dry, the agent inspected the small encampment. Two tents had been pitched, side by side on a hummock overlooking the lake. One tent contained a cot and a few personal belongings. The other had been set up with one side open to the lake, providing an excellent view of the water for miles. Just down the shoreline stood a tower and a partial wall of an ancient fortification, the rest of the structure having been turned into scattered stones over the years. Teague had no doubt that the site for the castle had likewise been chosen for the excellent view. In the back of this tent were a number of crates. Some had been opened and appeared to contain supplies for the camp. The fire pit had been drowned in the rain, but still had a tripod over it and a camp pot perched over where the fire should have been. In another long crate, Teague found a heavy caliber rifle and several boxes of ammunition. There was also a void in the packing materials of the crate, where another rifle should have been. Teague righted one of the camp chairs, brushed off the dirt, and sat himself down upon it. What did you think you had found, Pennyfarthing? Teague mumbled to himself. Hollow! came a call from behind the tent. Teague exited and found an old man making his way down the path from the road to the camp. He was a grizzled old man with wisps of grey hair sticking out from under a battered oilskin hat on his head. 
He was wearing a stained and weathered Macintosh over his dark clothing and sturdy boots caked with mud. As the old man drew near, Teague spotted the white clerical collar peeping through the open collar of his raincoat. Ah, I thought you were his lordship. I'm Father Graham Blackmore, from the chapel. He gestured up the hill at an old stone building that could barely be seen through the trees. I was on my way into town to take tea at Maggie's. I thought I'd invite his lordship to give up his fairy chasing and join me for a cup. Are you an associate of his lordship's? Teague extended his hand and was rewarded with a strong handshake from the old man. I'm Agent Brian Teague from the government. I've been sent here to verify Lord Pennyfarthing's find, but it seems that now his lordship himself has gone missing. Did you speak with him often, father? Oh, aye. I come by here just about every day. We'd have a good chat, and I'd try to get him to give up this fool's errand. His lordship is a stubborn man, and sure there's something more than fish to be found in the lock. Now he's missing, you see. Teague ignored the question and pressed on with one of his own. Do you know what Lord Pennyfarthing was looking for, father? The old priest went and sat on one of the camp stools. Pish and nonsense, my boy. This area has been full of folklore and superstition. Fishermen seeing shapes in the mist and telling tall tales in the pub. His lordship was sure that there was something behind all the tales. He turned and looked back up at the agent. I tried to tell him that all the locks in this area have similar tales, and that there's nothing to them but a good yarn around the cook fires. But he wouldn't listen to an old priest like me. Do we know what happened to him? Apparently, Lord Pennyfarthing and the Spencer boy went out on the lake in a small boat last night, and it sank. The boy made it back to the shore, but he's feverish. The doctor says he isn't giving a coherent account of what happened. No sign of his lordship or the boat. Oh, dear. Thank you for letting me know. I'd better get into town and see what I can do for Robbie and his ma'am. Why don't you come with me, Mr. Teague? I might be able to find out what happened from Robbie. No use sitting out here in the wind if you don't have to. The agent considered the old priest's offer, but decided that there might still be clues here in the camp. Thank you, Father, but I believe I still have work here. Although I would appreciate it if you would convince the doctor to let me speak with the Spencer boy. The old priest grunted as he stood. Very well. If you've set your mind, I'll see what I can do without you. Could you at least give me a hand back up the road? The agent agreed, and taking the priest's arm, the two of them made their way up the muddy path to the road that ran parallel to the shore of the lake. As the pair achieved their goal, a horse-drawn cart came down the road, moving quickly. Upon seeing the two of them at the roadside, the driver pulled back on the reins, bringing the cart up alongside them. The horse huffed and snorted as the driver called down to them. Father Graham, they pulled his lordship from the lake. The man's been hurt awful bad, Father. The doc says he's nae gonna make it. Teague helped the priest up into the cart, and then scrambled up next to him. I've decided to take you up on your offer, father. The driver carefully turned the cart about in the middle of the lane, and then they set back off to the village at a trot.
Following along in Father Graham's wake, Teague made his way into the small hospital and was led to the room where Lord Pennyfarthing had been brought. The doctor looked at the priest mournfully. There is nothing I can do, Father. His leg has been taken off and the infection has run all through him. It's a miracle he's lasted this long. I've given him morphine for the pain, but he's not stable enough for me to do much else. The priest put a hand on the doctor's shoulder. I understand, my son. You did what you could. Now let us see what we can do to ease his passing. The doctor shot Teague a sharp look, but didn't argue when the two men stepped into the room. The room was filled with the smell of lake water and the stench of infection. Lord Pennyfarthing lay on a hospital bed, still wet from the lake. His right leg ended abruptly above where his knee should have been. A leather belt had been tied around the truncated thigh and drawn tight, squeezing the color from the pallid flesh of his leg. The fabric of his pants had been cut away from the belt, and sickly green stains could be seen beneath the skin. Teague, covering his mouth and nose with a handkerchief, moved to the bedside and began to examine the wound. The tear was ragged and appeared to the agent's eye to have been caused by something with large curved teeth. The priest stepped up to the left side of the bed and laid a gentle hand on the fevered man's shoulder. Lord Pennyfarthing's eyes shot open and his hand shot out and grabbed the priest by the collar. Pulling the old man close, the lord spoke with frantic intensity. I found it, father. I found it. It's real. Moving up to Pennyfarthing's head, the agent tried to disengage the lord's grip on the old man. Father Graham made a placating gesture to Teague, but addressed his words to Pennyfarthing. What did you find, Ainsley? The wounded man turned to the agent and grabbed his shoulder with his right hand. Teague! You won't make a laughing stock of me this time, boy. I found it. It's real. Teague looked into the man's eyes, seeing a mania that had consumed the man's entire being. What did you find? He asked, feeling some of that mania seeping into himself. A beast. A mighty beast in the lock. A great serpent that hides beneath the water. I've seen it. Its head is as big as a man, and it bit through my leg and the boat as if they weren't there. But it's just bounced off its hide. You must hunt it. Bring it to ground. You owe me that much, Teague. Show the world what I found. Penny Farthing's monster. Show them the truth. The legends are true. These creatures are everywhere. The man gasped, digging his fingers into Teague's shoulder. He pulled himself up briefly from the bed and then collapsed back onto its surface in a limp heap. The agent put his fingers to the side of the Lord's neck, drawing upon the basic medical training the ministry required for all agents. Unable to find a pulse, Teague folded the man's hands over his chest. Turning to the priest, he said, I believe he is now in your care, Father. The priest reached under his vest and pulled out a large gold cross, engraved with knotwork and worn smooth around the edges with the handling of many hands. As the priest began to pray, Teague turned and walked from the room. 
he called for the doctor, informing the man that his lordship appeared to have passed. I'm afraid that Lord Payfarthing has passed away. The priest is seeing to him now. April 11th, 1883. The fire crackled in the freshly dug fire pit stocked with firewood that had been stashed inside one of the empty crates. Agent Teague checked the rifle again, trying to assure himself that it was indeed clean and ready to fire. He had never been comfortable with firearms, but it seemed better than his other alternative. His eyes slid to a small crate that sat at the edge of the firelight, and the three sticks of dynamite that sat upon it for easy access. He didn't dare move the explosives any closer to the fire, and he was afraid that he'd end up blowing himself to pieces as it was. Teague directed his eyes back out over the lake. Night had closed in quickly in the highlands, and for once the clouds had cleared. Moonlight reflected off the water of the lake, making it shimmer in the cold night air. He swept his gaze over the water, searching for some sign of the beast. His instructions from the director had been clear. Debunk the find if possible, but if Pennyfarthing's discovery turned out to be real, secure the sample for the ministry, live if possible, but dead if necessary. Should the creature prove to be dangerous, death would be required. Teague thought of himself as a scientist. He was not comfortable with the role of a hunter but there was no denying that the creature had proven to be dangerous. The snap of bracken behind him sent Teague spinning around, the rifle raised to his shoulder and ready to fire. He halted as he saw that the cause was the old priest. Father Graham raised his hands. It's just me, son. No reason to fire. Teague lowered the weapon and turned back to face the water. What are you doing out here, father? It's not safe. I can see that. Why don't you come with me? My place is not far. We can discuss this over a nice glass of whiskey. I have work to do here, Father. The government sent me to collect a sample if this find proved to be real. That is what I am here to do. Teague paced down the hill, his steps crunching on the stones of the shoreline, the water of the lake lapping a few feet from him. The old man moved down to stand next to Teague, looking at him with piercing eyes. You don't want to do this, my son. You're not that kind of man. You admire God's creatures. You're not one to kill them. Give it up, son. If there is something in the lock, maybe it's better off left where it is. Leave it be, son. You saw what that thing did to Lord Pennyfarthing, father. The man was an ass, but he didn't deserve that. While this thing lives, everyone in this town is in danger. Possibly everyone along the shores of the lake. It is a clear danger to the Empire, and I have to take care of it. What if there is something worse, lad? A greater danger. Something that this creature keeps in check. If you kill this creature, you could be unleashing a worse terror on the world. The priest's voice rang out over the lake like a sermon in nature's own cathedral. 
You sound as if you know about this, Father. You've been discouraging my investigation every step of the way. Is this monster some doing of yours? Are you the cause of it? Is that man's death on your hands? No! It's not like that, lad. No one was ever meant to be hurt. You don't understand, boy. Some secrets are meant to be secret. I deal in secrets, father. What are you hiding? Boy, you're middling in things that you just don't understand! The priest cut off in mid-harangue and clutched at his chest before tumbling to the ground like a felled tree. Teague rushed over to the old man, going down on one knee and placing the rifle on the ground. You'd better not be faking, father. The priest was breathing heavily. He fumbled around his neck, pulling out the heavy cross that Teague had seen at the hospital. I don't have much time. It has to be you. Slipping the chain over his head, he pushed the cross into Teague's hand. The truth now, boy. I am the last of the Order of Columba. We have protected the secret of the lock for centuries. Now it has to be you. The beast has been imprisoned beneath the lake. But with my death, it will try to escape. He struggled to catch his breath. And then closed Teague's fingers around the cross. Take the cross. With it you can call upon the guardian. Use it to keep the beast at bay. The beast will come for me. His fingers tightened on Teague's hand and he levered himself up to stare into Teague's eyes. It must not get the cross! The old man slumped back. Teague caught him with one hand and tucked the cross into his pocket. It all depends on you! His voice fading out with his final breath, the old priest died in Teague's arms. Teague checked his neck for a pulse, but could find no sign of life. He closed the priest's eyes and placed his hands over his chest. Rest in peace, Father. Teague stood and retrieved the cross from his pocket. It was about five inches long and three wide and decorated with intricate knotwork. Small gems were set into each of the cardinal points, but what appeared to be a common stone was set in the center of the cross. Teague was about to place it back on the priest's chest when a mournful cry echoed off the hills and over the lake. Something in the darkness was expressing its grief. A keening cry raised to the sky. Teague stuffed the cross into his pocket and grabbed his rifle back up again. Backing his way up the small hill, the agent pointed his gun out over the water. He remembered the priest's warning that the beast would come for him. The water of the lake began to bubble and boil, the shoreline directly in front of the agent frothing as some gigantic monstrosity thrust itself up. Flopping through the dark waters, the thing drew into sight, heaving itself from the water onto the shore. Teague's mind reeled as he tried to take in the abomination. The creature appeared to be assembled from the pieces of hundreds of bodies, melded together into an unholy imitation of life. Rotted cloth hung from the thing in some places, while in others ancient armor still clung to the bodies that should have dissolved centuries ago. 
helmets of Roman legionnaires remain strapped to the lolling heads of soldiers over a thousand years gone. The monster stretched out across the shoreline, thrusting itself forward on hands, feet, and other appendages that defied description. Its body extended for yards back into the frothing water. The stench of death and corruption made Teague gag and wretch. The agent raised his rifle and fired three shots into the mass of the abomination. The bullets ripped into it, but as soon as the holes formed, the flesh of the beast sealed them back over. Undeterred, the beast flopped its way further onto the bank. The agent turned and ran up the bank to the circle of firelight. He dropped the rifle to the ground and grabbed up the three sticks of dynamite. He lit the fuse of the first stick, then flung it at the creature, then repeated the action a second and a third time. The dynamite arced down onto the body of the creature, then detonated with three booming explosions. The blast ripped gaping holes in the mass and rained down severed limbs over the monster. Teague gaped in astonishment as the severed limbs grafted themselves back onto the mass where they fell, often while pointed in the wrong direction. Pieces that fell apart from the monstrosity bound to each other and flopped around on the shore, reaching back towards the central mass. As he stared in disbelief, the wounds refilled themselves, strange worm-like masses pulling parts of bodies from the other sections of the beast. The thing continued to flop forward onto the shore, but came to a stop when it approached the body of Father Graham. As Agent Teague looked on in revulsion, the abomination reached out with dead arms and grabbed the corpse, lifting it up against its own mass. Worm-like appendages pushed from the body of the thing and hooked into the priest's flesh. As they burrowed into the dead man, his body jerked and shuddered. Eventually, he was grafted into the mass of the monster on the beach. The old priest's limbs began moving again, and his eyes opened and rolled. A low groan emitted from the priest's mouth. Teague stumbled backwards, tripping in his haste and sprawling onto the ground. The beast resumed its progress, flopping its monstrous body further onto the shoreline, random arms and legs seeking purchase to drag its bulk from the water. Scrambling backwards, the agent remembered the cross in his pocket. He dug it out and brandished it at the abomination. Trying desperately to remember the words of the priest, Teague held the cross high and called out, Guardian! Guardian, I need your help! Not knowing what he expected to happen. A stentorian roar echoed across the lake. The metal of the cross burnt Teague's hand, searing into his flesh. He tried to release it, but strangely his hand only gripped the metal tighter. Visions of rushing water filled Teague's mind, and a blinding light like a beacon flared ahead of him. Through the tears in his eyes, Teague saw the beast hesitate for a moment, then throw itself forward with greater urgency, frantically trying to gain the shore. A great reptilian head burst forth from the water at the end of a long, muscular neck, 
and arced down into the midst of the beast, biting into the tainted flesh of the thing. A foul taste filled Teague's mouth, making him want to gag and spit. He swore that something was fighting against his tongue. The reptile twisted its neck, lifting up the monstrosity and tossing it back into the lake. The agent's eyes rolled back into his head. He fell to the ground, overwhelmed as his mind was filled with the emotions and senses of the reptilian creature. In his mind, he saw the creature take its anger, their anger, out on the abomination, beating the unholy thing back from the shore, hammering it with heavy blows from head, tail, and flipper. With their powerful, scaled body, they drove the thing into the lake, folding it back onto itself until it collapsed into an uncoordinated ball. Grabbing the foul-tasting thing in their mouth, they dove, pushing it into the depths of the lake, down, down into the darkness, driving into the murky depths. In the very deepest part of the lake, they pounded the monster into the mud at the bottom, miring it. Then, with a powerful thrust, they rose up along the submerged cliffs, hammering against the stones. Under this repeated attack, the cliff shattered, raining boulders down to bury the beast. Their fury and grief spent, they swam for the surface again, rising through the waters in mighty strokes. Their head breached the surface, and together they breathed in the sweet pre-dawn air over the lock. The danger over for the moment, they relaxed and returned to their separate cells. Teague came to himself, lying on his back on the shore. The light morning rain fell on him as dawn tinged the horizon. As he blinked the rain out of his eyes, Teague levered himself onto his elbows and <laughs> laughed at the overcast skies. Oh. The cross was still clutched in his hand. The agent sat up and slipped the cross's chain over his neck. He looked at his hand. He could still feel the echo of the burn, but the flesh seemed whole and intact. His hand only seemed a little stiff from clutching the cross all night. Teague climbed back to his feet and looked out over the waters of the lock for a moment. Then he turned and began walking back to the village. May 17th, 1883. The door to the study creaked loudly as it opened, but the man behind the desk continued writing without even looking up. Robbie, I told you to knock before coming into my study. I'll be sure to remind him if I should see him. Agent Teague looked up in surprise at the rotund man standing just inside the door to the study. His appearance gave the impression of joviality, although that impression didn't extend to his eyes, which seemed to pierce Teague to the very core. The agent stood and addressed his visitor. 
Dr. Sound. What a surprise. I wasn't aware that you still went out into the field, sir. Normally, I don't have to. But then again, normally, my agents don't refuse to return from the field at the conclusion of an investigation. Teague shifted uncomfortably. Ah, uh, I'm afraid, Director, that now I have responsibilities here that require my presence. Responsibilities that cannot be set aside, sir. Dr. Sound stepped further into the study and approached the antique wood desk located in the center of the small room. He seated himself in one of the two chairs facing the desk and took a moment to glance at the stuffed bookshelves that covered the walls of the small study. He leaned back in the chair, considering Teague for a moment before answering. Would these new responsibilities have something to do with the fact that when I asked after you in the village, they sent me here to find Father Brian? Teague colored momentarily. I am afraid that was the doing of my predecessor, Father Graham. He picked up a leather-bound book from the desk and handed it to the director. He was the last member of a secret order that called itself the Brotherhood of Columba. He spent some time telling the villagers that, in the event of his death, the call would come to one of them, and they would have to take over his parish. Teague sat. When they saw me come in with Father Graham's cross, they decided that the call had come to me, and I was now Father Brian. He rubbed his forehead. I guess, in a way, I did receive a calling. Sound looked at the younger man. And this new spiritual calling is what is keeping you here? Not exactly, sir. Did you read the report that I sent in? Sound steepled his fingers. Yes, but I wanted to hear it from you myself. Lord Pennyfarthing had indeed found a creature in the lock. What he did not know is that the creature was here for a purpose. Something else is imprisoned in the lock. Something that the Brotherhood referred to as the Demon. The creature is here as a guardian, to keep the Demon from escaping. And the Brotherhood was created to protect the creature. To protect it? Yes, sir. From the prying eyes of men, from those who would hunt it, or use it. And now this Brotherhood of Columba is gone. Except for me, Director. You believe that this supersedes your duty to the Ministry, then, Teague? The agent bowed his head, then looked up at the Director of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences. Dr. Sound... You sent me out here to secure a sample for the Ministry, if Lord Pennyfarthing's find proved to be real. I have done so. The creature is real, and I have secured it on behalf of the Ministry. It also turns out that it is vitally important to the safety of the Empire, possibly the world, for the creature to remain here. And, since I took up the Cross of Columba, I have been bonded to the creature— and I must remain here as well, watching over it and keeping it hidden from the world. He gestured to the books surrounding them on the walls. These are the accounts of my predecessors, going back centuries. I have barely begun to scratch the law here, sir, but 
Everything I have found so far makes two things clear. I will have to watch over the lock for the rest of my life. And, when I die, someone will have to take up the cross. Otherwise, we will unleash something unspeakable on the Empire. Bonded, you said. In what way? The agent smiled. I can feel the creature in the back of my head. If I concentrate, I can sense what she senses. It is a little like being in two places at once. I can guide her, keep her away from prying eyes. Her? Yes, the creature is a female, sir. And the attack on Lord Pennyfarthing? From what I've been able to gather, he was actively hunting her at night. My best guess is that Father Graham was asleep when the attack happened and was unable to properly control her. Teague removed a heavy cross on a chain around his neck and placed it on the desk between them. This is the artifact? Yes, Director. The Cross of Columba. Director Sound leaned in to look at the gilded cross. He reached one pudgy hand towards it, but checked himself before touching it. He looked at Teague under heavy brows. Is it safe? Yes, sir. For you, it is quite safe, as long as I am alive. Sound hesitated a moment longer, then picked up the cross. Teague continued. From what I've read in the more recent records, the cross appears to have just one function. It forms a bond between the guardian and the person that holds the cross. Once the bond is formed, it lasts until death. So, when I die, someone had better be around to take up the cross. Sound flipped the cross over and examined the engravings on the back. That's all. It just forms the bond and nothing else. That is all we know for sure. I've come across some speculation from past holders that the cross somehow uses the bond to keep the demon confined to the lake. The demon is aware of the cross. When the old holder dies, it comes straight for the cross. If it gets to the cross first, there may be no caging it again. It may even be able to control the guardian. He shook his head. I'd rather not think about that. Then I should take this back to London for safekeeping. Sound started to fit the cross into his pocket. No! Teague jumped forward, then stopped himself. I can't leave the lock, but I can't leave the cross either. I left it by my bedside one morning, and I barely got out the door. I am bound to it as much as I am bound to the lake. He held his hand out for the cross. After a moment, Sound solemnly returned it. You're not giving me a lot of options here, Agent Teague. That is a position I do not like to be put in by my agents. I'm sorry, sir. Sound considered the man for a long moment, as Teague returned the cross to its place around his neck. The director then grunted, and pushed himself back to his feet. It would seem that I have little choice. You are correct in one matter, Teague. You have acquired a valuable asset for the Ministry, one which we need to protect. This is what we are going to do. 
Effective immediately, you are now assigned to the Scottish branch of the Ministry, on permanent detached duty to Loch Ness. You will coordinate through the Inverness office. I'll have their archivists contact you about securing translations of these histories. He considered a moment longer, then asked, How do you intend to deal with the church? This parish has a long history of lay ministers, sir. It is small enough not to gather too much notice, and there seems to be an understanding of sorts with the bishop. Just don't expect me to bail you out of trouble with the church, vicar. Sound turned and walked to the door of the small study. Director! The portly man stopped with his hand on the doorknob and turned back to Teague. Thank you for your understanding, sir. I... well, I don't plan on dying any time soon, but when it does happen... He trailed off. Yes, I'll arrange for an assistant to watch over you. Perhaps this might be a good first field experience for young agents, hmm? One corner of Sound's mouth twitched upwards at the idea. Thank you, sir. Just make sure that once they leave here, they don't give me as much trouble as you have. I promise you I will not be so lenient in the future. The director jerked the study door open with a squeal. He started to leave, but then turned back for one final remark. And for God's sake, name these things. If you're going to report on a monster in Loch Ness, I want to know which one you're talking about. No more of this beast and creature nonsense. Give them proper names. With that, Sound exited the study, letting the door slam behind him. The agent turned priest sat down at his desk and considered this last request from the director. Names for the Loch Ness monsters, eh? He smiled. Yes. Nessie? Father Brian liked the sound of that. Old Nessie. He was pretty sure that she'd like it too. He'd have to look up some appropriately biblical name for the demon of the lock, but that could wait until later. He reached out to her with his mind, calling out to Nessie. She answered with images of cool waters and a feeling of pleasure. She accepted the name. Together, they were Nessie. Doc Coleman is an emerging writer and voice actor whose work has been featured on the Every Photo Tells podcast and in the steampunk special edition of Flagship Magazine. He is currently working on a series of steampunk novels under the title The Adventures of Crackle and Bang. You can find out more about this series and follow his latest projects at swimmingcatstudios.com and find all of his projects at doccoleman.com. Theme music composed and performed by Alex White. Find out more at thegearheart.com. 
For more from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, order your copy of The Janus Affair, a Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences novel, from your favourite bookstore, or online from Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, the iBookstore, or the Science Fiction Book Club. This podcast is protected by the Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Tales from the Archives. And Imagine That Studios, Koru Studios, Harper Voyager Production. I'm T. Morris. And I'm Philippa Ballantyne. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening.